And this, this evening we'll be reading Isaiah 46, the whole chapter, the 13 verses of Isaiah 46. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry, and you will and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we should be alike. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place. And it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn hard-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion, for Israel, my glory. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for this, the truth of your holy word. And as we come to this passage, as we consider this topic this evening, we ask, Father, that you would give us understanding to the truth of your word, that you'd reveal it to us, uh, give us understanding, that we might be better equipped to be Uh, not only faithful followers, but faithful servants for your glory. And so we ask, Father, for your blessing now upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In this uh, chapter of the prophet Isaiah, the Lord is seeking to bring comfort uh, and reassurance to his people that though they will be sent into captivity that the Lord will be faithful to remember them and that He will truly, uh, truly restore them at the appointed time. And He first calls out <clears throat> the weakness of the idol gods worshipped by their captors, the Babylonians. Even though the Babylonians will rise to greatness in the world and take the people of Israel into captivity for 70 years, the Lord will bring the Babylonians down at the appointed time. <coughs> So that one day the Babylonians themselves would be conquered 
and would be taken into captivity. This would be accomplished through the servant of the Lord, whom the Lord would raise up. And prophetically, this servant is named in chapter 45 of Isaiah as Cyrus, the Persian king who would rise to power after the fall of Babylon, and through him, the Lord would bring the Jewish captives back to their land. This is the plan, and the Lord reassures the remnant of the faithful who will be alive at the time, that this all will truly happen, because the Lord himself, the one true living God, has purposed it, even from the beginning. These chapters in Isaiah <coughs> are striking for uh, for many reasons, but uh, even as many old other other excuse me as many other Old Testament prophets, prophecies, because the Lord here clearly declares what would happen at the end of captivity, even before the Jews were ever taken into captivity. And in the case of Cyrus, whom the Lord would appoint and, and rise up to, uh, to lead them back into the land, it was nearly 200 years, Isaiah is prophesying this, nearly 200 years before Cyrus was even born. And this becomes an issue for, uh, for liberal critics who uh, think that Isaiah is writing this or someone else is writing this after the fact. Uh, but this is prophecy of the Lord. And uh, the Lord truly knows what was going to happen. In fact, it did. It all happened precisely as God had said. There was a king, Cyrus, who came to power uh, in Persia and, and, uh, the, the, and uh, the, conquered the Babylonians. And he was there when the Israelites or the Jews were able to return uh, to the land of, of Israel. Well, this isn't only these things happen precisely as God said, not only because God knew what was going to happen, but as we'll see, it happened because God appointed it to happen, even before the foundation of the earth. As he declares here, he has declared the end from the beginning. And so it was his plan and purpose, and therefore it was truly accomplished. So God's eternal plan and purpose which he has set before the foundation of the world, is what we refer to as God's eternal decree. And this is the subject of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 3 of God's eternal decrees. And the use of the word eternal is actually uh, very important as it highlights that God had determined what would happen far back in eternity past. Again, before the very foundations of the earth were laid into place. Now as we come to this subject of doctrine in the confession, we must recognize that it's truly one of the most challenging and difficult doctrines to grasp. Not because the Westminster Divines wrote that chapter in a very difficult manner. Actually, it's, it's very easy to understand what's being said. No, it's difficult. The, the challenge comes with the subject itself and how it's revealed in the scriptures, and how it's applied to the creation in general, and also especially how it's applied to us, specifically in relation to our salvation. And it ultimately comes down to some big questions. Why does God do the things 
that He does? Why does God allow certain things to happen, but not other things? Why doesn't God just stop uh, terrible natural disasters that claim thousands and thousands of lives? Why doesn't He stop those? How can a loving God send people to hell? How can God show favoritism to His elect? And on and on those big questions can go, and you can use your imagination to add. But just because a subject is challenging and and makes us uneasy, doesn't mean that it's not true. There are some things revealed in the Scriptures that are very hard to understand, at least from a human perspective, and we considered one such doctrine last time when we looked at the Trinity. And many of these hard-to-understand things, though, will always remain a mystery to our finite minds, and so we have to learn to be content with that. In other words, we may, not, we, we may not achieve an answer to some of these big questions, but we can, because God has revealed it, we can at least come to knowledge, acknowledge the truth of what it is that God has revealed in His Word. So we can know the truth, but we can't know all the truth. Well, we'll consider the doctrine of God's eternal decrees over uh, the next couple of weeks as it applies to, to different areas. But, but part of the confusion and the lack of understanding on this subject is often due to the different terms associated with it and, of course, then defining those terms and what they actually mean. And so this evening we're just going to do kind of an introduction to this subject of God's decrees. And we're just going to define some terms and then also look at some uh, important passages uh, that we'll be considering over the next uh, couple weeks. Well, this evening, we're going to consider this terminology. We begin by considering this terminology. And the first word that we want to look at is the word decree. What is meant by God's decree? Well, God's decree is essentially that which He has declared and what He has planned to do. God's decree is His will, His counsel, His plan, or His good pleasure. These are all uh, terms that we find in Scriptures that speak of God's decree, what God has planned and purposed. And we see this reference... um, We see reference to this plan and counsel here in Isaiah 46 in verse 10. He says, my counsel shall stand. Right. So what he has decreed shall stand. And then he also says, I will do all my pleasure. He will do all what he has purposed. And in verse 11, I have purposed it. I have planned it. So God in his perfect wisdom and eternal wisdom has a particular plan and a purpose in mind at all times. That God never needs to fly by the seat of his pants, but all he does is according to his own good pleasure. That is, it's according to his own plan. And of course, we know that God has the right to do this, again, because he's God. And he can do with his creation whatever he wants. God is the creator, we are the creatures, we're part of the creation. God can do with us whatever he wants. The potter can do with the clay as he wills. And what God has planned and purposed, whatsoever comes about. And as we noted, this plan and purpose is eternal. It has always been, even as God has always been, so that the plan and purpose of God, His eternal decree, is always perfect, 
always good and just because it reflects God's own character. Now, once the world was created, we now see God working out that plan that he purposed in eternity past, that God is now working out that plan in and through his creation. And we refer to this as God executing his decrees, and he does that for our good and his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 8, asks this, how does, how does God execute his decrees? God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Now, these are the, actually the next two respective chapters in the, the Confession of Faith, and so we'll get those uh, to those uh, as well in a, in a couple weeks. God's decree concerning creation, of course, involving his creating and sustaining of all things, including mankind. And then God's decree concerning providence involves his oversight, God's oversight over his creatures, over his creation and their actions, and his sustaining of them, even as we sang in Psalm 104. And so that is the decree of God. Well, another important word is the word predestination. Predestination literally means to destine before or to establish the destiny of beforehand. And the word certainly tends to get folks all worked up, but it is a thoroughly biblical term. It is found in the pages of the scriptures, unlike, as we considered last time, the word trinity does not appear, even though the doctrine itself it appears. Well, with predestination, you can't get around it because it's right there in the scriptures. And as we'll see, in a general way, God has predestined whatsoever comes to pass, but in specifically related to mankind and our salvation, God's decree of predestination is often referenced to in the acts of election and reprobation. And again, Lord willing, we're not going to go into those now, but we'll, we will get to those, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. But that's predestination. God determining these things beforehand. Uh, a word very closely related to predestination is the word foreordination. Uh, this is basically a synonym for predestination. It just means to ordain before, um, ordain beforehand. Another term that is also closely related but is different is the term foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is actually an outworking of God's omniscience, that he knows all things, and also the fact that God is eternal. Right? So he's eternal, so he certainly knows all things past, present, and future. <clears throat> well, if God knows all things and he is eternal, then he certainly knows all the things that are going to happen in eternity future from the eternity past. It's important to note, as we'll see again, that in a, uh, in a couple weeks, that in Scripture, wherever we read the word foreknowledge, the word predestination or foreordination is either explicitly stated or is implied. And that's important because some like to conflate the two uh, as if they were one, but they're, they're distinct, but they are very much related. And foreknowledge, we, when you find the word foreknowledge in the scriptures, it's always accompanied by predestination or foreordination. Well, another important word to consider regarding God's decree is the word sovereignty. This term refers to God's authority 
His authority as creator, ruler, and the Lord of all things. His authority to make decrees as well as His authority and the power that He has to actually carry those things out. So when the Lord says in Isaiah 46 verse 10, Indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. God is declaring that He has a plan and because He has the power and the authority as the sovereign, one, true, living God, well then He will bring His plan to fruition. And so that's God's sovereignty. Well then we have God's sovereign will and His decree and it's often held next to the human will, the will of man. And so we hear the, the God's will and man's will. How do they relate to one another? Well, God as creator has bestowed mankind with a will or desire to act. We often talk of the human will in relation to God's decree in terms of whether man has a free will or whether man's will is bound. Well, in chapter 9 of the Confession, we'll deal with uh, and defines free will. And simply for our purposes here, uh, basically free will, mankind has the freedom to will and act in accordance with his nature. So the free will of man is not the common conception uh, that we often hear people uh, speak about when they talk about uh, man's free will. But man's will is free, but he must act in accordance with his nature. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means if man's nature is unblemished by sin, as the nature of Adam and Eve was and when they were initially created, well, then man's will is free to choose good or evil. But if man's nature is sinful, as we all are now, born in sin, because of Adam and Eve's uh, rebellion against God, if man's nature is sinful, well, then man's will is bound to that sin in nature though man can act freely within the bounds of that nature. So we can we still make choices, but again, those choices are bound by our sin nature and therefore always in rebellion against God. Well, if man's nature is redeemed, as we are when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, well then true freedom is restored and he can choose either good or evil, though his purpose, goal, and duty is to choose good. right? That's our, our desire. As believers in Christ, we want to do good. And Paul talks about that struggle that he has uh, in it, with the flesh, where he, he wants to do good, and what he wants to do, he doesn't do, and what he doesn't want to do, that's what he does. And we can certainly uh, relate to that rather confusing uh, words of Paul there in, in uh, Romans chapter 7. Well, if man's nature is glorified, so these, these are the four states of man, uh, unblemished by sin at creation, and then we fall into sin, we have a sinful nature, then we're redeemed, well, then we have a glorified nature. So in that glorified nature, this, of course, is when, uh, at the, uh, after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we enter into his glorious presence and his kingdom forever and ever, well, then our will is bound, the glorified will is bound to that nature. 
And that is, we can only choose to do that which is good. And that will be a great time, a great uh, state to be in. To be in that glorified state where we only do that which is good. Where we not only desire to do good, but we can only choose to do good. And so that's how we think about the will of man and how it's, it's we're free to act within our nature, but it depends on what state of our nature is, is and how we, are, we act accordingly. <clears throat> and so there are the important terms that we, um, that we need to understand uh, God's decree, predestination, foreknowledge, sovereignty, and the human will. There are also several passages that we'll be considering over the next couple of weeks uh, that are critical to this doctrine, and we'll be looking at these and just want to give a, a brief overview of some of these key passages. The first one is in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Well, this shows us clearly that God is a sovereign creator of heaven and earth, that God spoke, and all things came into existence by the word of his power. And remember, one of the ways God executes his decree is through creation. And so we see that example there in Genesis 1. Also in Psalm 104, and we again we uh, sang a portion of this earlier, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Now, the passage that speaks of the spirit of God active in creation, and that all creation is sustained by the, uh, by the living God. Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Note here especially, in verse 9, that God speaks and it's done. He commands and it happens. Again, that's God uh, executing his decree. In this case, it would be his decree of providence and whatever is happening uh, in, uh, in the world. Verse 10 shows God's sovereignty over his, over his creatures, that God's plans supersedes the plans of his creatures and even the plans of men. Um, the... Discover in Proverbs that you know the Lord, ma- the man makes his his plans, but it's the Lord who is directing his steps. And so we make our plans, and we see this all the time. We make plans, and there's something happens, and we have to change our plans. Well, because the plan of God always supersedes our own. And then also here in verse eleven, God's decrees and plans are eternal, even as God Himself is eternal. And we've already uh, considered that aspect. Another passage is Isaiah 14, verses 24 to 27. The Lord of hosts has, has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot, that his yoke will be, uh, shall be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders." This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, 
and who will turn it back? Here, uh, the prophecy is against the Assyrians who had taken the uh, northern nation of Israel away into captivity uh, long before uh, Judah was taken into captivity by uh, the Babylonians. But here we see that God's thoughts uh, actually, he's not, he doesn't just think about these things and and doesn't, but whatever God thinks about, whatever his thoughts are, <clears throat> well, they actually come about. They turn into action. And that is his predetermined decree is executed in the unfolding of human history. What he thinks, that is what happens. This relates to the connection between foreknowledge and predestination. God's plan, that is what he knows, can't be separated from the execution of his decrees that is what he does. And so that's how foreknowledge and predestination actually work together. God knows it because he's planning to do it. And he plans, and of course, what he plans to do and does, he has known about since, uh, since the beginning. <clears throat> In verse 26 here also, uh, this is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. We see here God's power and authority to carry out his decree. Uh, again, are clearly emphasized. And in verse 27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? This emphasizes God's sovereign power and showing us that no one, absolutely no one, not, not a strong man, not a sinful man, not even Satan, no one can thwart the plan or purpose of God. And of course, again, that includes man and his will. Another passage, well actually our main passage, Isaiah 46 verses 9-13, through 13, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Verse 10, here not only... We see that not only does God know the end from the beginning, but again, He declares it even before it ever happens. Uh, we also see in verse 10 the purpose or the reason why God decrees and does the things that He does. It's for His, His own pleasure. That is because it pleases Him and brings Him glory. We also note here God's calling of not only the creatures, that is birds of prey, but even man. When God calls, the creatures respond. They do His bidding, and they accomplish what He's purposed for them. And so if God calls a man to salvation, that man will truly come accordingly. And finally, the assurance that comes uh, in this passage we see is emphasized that God will do it. Right? He has a plan and purpose and he will accomplish it. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can change it. Not the human will. Not the plots of Satan. Not sin in the world. Nothing can change the plan of God. And as we'll note another time, this doctrine should give us great hope and assurance 
Because the sovereign God of all the earth, the God who, who loves us, is using these decrees, using His sovereign power to work out all things for our good and His glory. And you think about it, it's God's plan and purpose in all things to glorify Himself, but not only to glorify Himself, but He also has us in mind, His redeemed, and He seeks our good. And that's the predetermined plan and purpose for God, of God since before the foundations of the world. Well, this, of course, leads to that great promise that we read earlier in Romans 8, <clears throat> verse 27 to 30. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. These verses in Romans 8 are often called the golden chain of salvation as they speak of the purpose of God as it relates to the salvation of mankind. Note the intertwining here, though, of God's will and his purpose. And also what God foreknew and predestined indeed will come about. What did God know and, for, and predestined? That he would call, justify, and glorify his people through Jesus Christ. And of course the ultimate end being our good and his glory. Well finally another critical passage that we'll consider in connection with especially God's decree and related to salvation is the opening of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. The apostle there says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So there's God's decree of election, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined, more specific, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, according to His plan and purpose, to the praise and the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That in and there we're seeing that God's plan was purposed in himself. It's not conditional upon anything. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are, in, on, on, uh, which are on earth in him, in him we also have our obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. There's the ultimate purpose to the glory of God. And then verse 13, In him you also trusted after you heard the truth, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. 
And so that uh, the sealing with the Holy Spirit of promise is the guarantee of our inheritance. So it's already taken care of. God has already planned it, purposed it. It's all set out, ready for us, waiting for us in his perfect timing. And this is certainly this uh, the opening of Ephesians chapter 1. Is certainly one of the very the more uh, clear and really eloquent and beautiful passages regarding God's decrees as they relate to salvation. And sometimes you wonder, people who reject the idea of predestination, uh, you wonder if whether their Bibles have this uh, Ephesians chapter one torn out or something because it's so very clear uh, when you see it through the eyes of faith. Well, again, this is just an introduction. Uh, as we consider these terms and as we consider these a variety of passages, we'll look at them again, many of them uh, over the next a couple of weeks, Lord willing. And we'll add, of course, a little bit more detail. But this broad scope ought to greatly encourage us. Though the decrees of God as a doctrine can certainly be difficult for us to grasp. And again, there's still many things about it, God's decrees that we do not understand, that we cannot understand. We do see, though, that it's clearly revealed in God's word that so whatever God has decreed happens. And because he's sovereign over all things, whatsoever happens is ultimately according to the plan and purpose of God even as he's moving us toward all the wonderful purpose that, are, that culminates in our good and in, culminates in the glory of God forever and ever. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to you for revealing to us in your word this glorious doctrine of your eternal decrees. And it is, there's much about it that is a great mystery. And, and we pray that as we look at this uh, topic over the next several weeks, that you would give us understanding uh, and insight as we see these truths here, um, and that we might be further equipped uh, to be faithful witnesses to this uh, truth, even though, again, we don't understand it all and we can't fully understand it because we're just finite creatures. We do pray that you will continue to have mercy upon us and helping us to understand what we can understand and that we trust you for even what we don't understand. And so we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for this this uh, truth and also ask that you would, through understanding this great doctrine, that you would help to encourage us and to bring us comfort uh, because there is much comfort to be found uh, in this glorious uh, truth of yours and so we again praise you and thank you father for these things again we thank you for the gift of the lord's day and our opportunity to be able to gather together this morning for worship and to fellowship and and now a time to gather together again this evening and we just pray that you would continue to be with us bless us that you would continue to bless our congregation and bless our witness to the community that we would be a beacon of light and hope uh, as we seek to declare faithfully the gospel of truth and uh, that you would give us opportunities to serve and minister the glorious gospel in your name. And as we now uh, go uh, prepare ourselves to enter into the week that lies ahead, we do pray for your grace and your mercy to be upon us, that you would strengthen us, and again, that you would help us to be faithful witnesses for your glory in all that we do. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat>